Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, our special night tonight, um, we are going to talk about esoteric Buddhism, also known as tantric Buddhism, also known as the Vajrayana. Um, a lot of different names for this world. Um, we are sort of going to be talking about one sutra in particular called the Demon General Asavaka's Dharani Sutra. So that's sort of going to be our sutra. I'm not really going to read too much from it. I'm going to more, I'm going to tell you about it. I have it, so I might read some parts of it if it seems relevant. Um, but I want to tell you, I want to use this opportunity, I want to use this sutra to sort of introduce you a little bit more to the world of, I guess what would be called Buddhist studies. Like if you were interested in learning about Buddhism, like where do you go? Where, where's the information on this stuff? So a little bit of background on that in order to introduce this tantric Buddhist sutra called the Demon General Atavaka's Dharani Sutra. Um, so yeah, I want to do that. And I want to talk about this idea of esoteric practice, esoteric religion, and things like that. Um, why don't we do that first? Before we do the sutra, I think that's the way to do it. So I want to talk about this idea of the esoteric. Um, this, of course, is just a word. It's an English word. It has nothing to do with Buddhism. It is a way that Western people, English-speaking people, have thought about religion and religious activity. And so this, these are more like anthropological terms, if you will. But... They're not just anthropological terms because they're not just terms used by outsiders looking in trying to understand. They're actually terms used by insiders to describe their activity. Um, uh, I put a timeline up here so that we could kind of keep track of when things are happening in Buddhism historically. Um, so yeah, so I want to just introduce that. So this idea of esoteric is not exclusively Buddhist, not exclusively Indian. It's just this idea. And I've put the two like categories of esoteric and then the opposite of it is exoteric, which a lot of people don't often hear of exoteric. So basically, really quickly, the word esoteric sort of means um, hidden or occult or secret. And that is versus exoteric religion, which would be open or available to the public. And here's what I mean by this is the, the idea of something being esoteric or not is something like whether it's the Bible, the, the Quran, the Torah, a Buddhist Sutra, whatever it is, right? Because again, this is applicable to all forms of religion. But what makes something exoteric is the idea that you could just stumble across a Bible you could just stumble across the Torah. You could just stumble across a sutra, pick it up. And the idea is, is that its meaning, its significance, its import, it's, it's on the page. 
It's, it's totally public, totally open for everybody with eyes and ears to hear it, understand it. Just, just open the book, start reading. There it is, all about Jesus and all about today, right? All about the resurrection, the whole thing. It's, it's right there. So that is the exoteric view of religion, that you don't need anybody to explain it to you. You just need to encounter it. Versus the esoteric. The esoteric, the hidden or the secret, is the idea that there are like hidden or secret meanings to the Bible. There's hidden or secret meanings to the Quran that, e- that you, you, you could come across a Quran and start reading the Surahs and reading all about Muhammad and all of that. But unless you know the secret, you won't be able to penetrate the real meaning of the text. Everybody kind of see this initial divide that things are hidden or they're not. Things are secret or they're not. And so, and this kind of, this secret or hiddenness cuts two ways. One is you pick up some, uh, you know, esoteric text. Again, doesn't matter what religion we're talking about, but you pick up the esoteric text. And the idea is, is that you can read it, but you don't know what it means. They're talking about all kinds of craziness. And so you need someone to explain to you, oh, no, 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 because the color red actually means this. And whenever they talk about the left, they actually mean this. And the idea is you get initiated or you get instructed in these teachings. And then you open it up and you're like, oh, that's right. The color red means that. Oh, whoa. And now all of a sudden, a new meaning of the text is opened before your eyes. And it was there the whole time. But you needed to know something in order to understand it. So everybody following that? Michael, are you saying the same text could be read? Yes. Both ways. I could read it and think I'm sort of getting one version of the story, but then if I work with somebody who knows the esoteric version, they could sort of say, well, there's a deeper, more subtle meaning. Yes. You understand that blah, blah. Yes. And that is... That is the idea of the esoteric, is that there are hidden meanings to these things. Exoteric religion sort of says, like, no, there's no hidden meanings. It is what it says. Jesus died, you know, Jesus was a nice guy, died for our sins. That's it. Like, kind of the thing, right? So that covers this initial divide between the the idea of there being secret or hidden meanings versus, no, 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 there's no secret or hidden meanings. Once we're in the world of secret and hidden meanings... Well, then we need a guru or a teacher to tell us about those secret or hidden meanings. So this is another quality of the esoteric, is that it kind of, again, no matter what type of religion you're talking about, what it means to be esoteric is that it usually entails a teacher-student relationship, which in India, or at least in, in, uh, yeah, in the Indian traditions, would be called a guru right a master or a teacher and it's that master or teacher who knows the secret language or has the secret texts or something like that versus exoteric religion is like no no you're on your own and if anything you have like jesus as a as a role model as somebody to like you know in your heart jesus what what would jesus do you know or what would buddha do but it's not a guru. It's not a living human being that you're like bowing down to. And by the way, that's another 
aspect of this guru teacher within the esoteric traditions, the guru or the teacher is usually deified. They're treated like a, a, a deity or divinity. Um, this goes especially for esoteric Buddhism, which we're not really talking about just yet. I'm still just introducing you to the general idea of esoteric religion. Um, but now we are going to get more specifically, uh, at least Indian. Um, so another aspect of the esoteric is that it's really founded on rituals, like, the, like these performative acts. And in India, and in Buddhism in India, and then actually Buddhism outside of India, the primary ritual is a fire ritual called a homa. This thing is it's called a homa. And the homa is this very ancient Indian practice. It's off the charts. It's like, you know, over here as far as when temporary, right? We only go to 2000 BC. Who knows when this ritual homa fire developed, but it begins by the creation of a um, a fire pit in the form of a circle. And this circle that you would draw on the ground is called a mandala. So mandala is the essence of a circle. That's what mandala means. Manda is a circle. La means the essence, the essence of the manda, mandala. And the idea is, is that you would draw a circle and then you may even get into creating what's called a yantra. Y-A-N-T-R-A, which would be like kind of the classic yantra that you could imagine to evoke a feeling that I want you to have right now is like a pentagram, right? You draw the pentagram on the ground to consecrate the space or protect it or what have you. And then within that circle that's been consecrated, you create a fire and that fire is heavily ritualized in terms of a, an elaborate procedure of offerings to the fire, flowers, ghee, uh, clarified butter, incense, uh, all kinds of things to make the fire grow higher and higher. And the basic idea of these esoteric rituals is that by way of the fire, there is communication going on with other realms, other dimensions. I don't know. You know, again, we, we talk about this every Sunday. I don't know how we want to describe these things, whether we're thinking of them as other dimensions, other realms, heavenly realms, what have you. But in India, even in Buddhism, there is the idea that there are realms beyond what we humans can see with our tiny bandwidth of light that we can perceive, right? We're very narrow here, and there's a whole world of spirits and energies and beings and all of that. And there is something magical about a fire, literally the fire, that is a medium, a mediary between this world and those other dimensions. Traditionally in India, this fire is called Agni. Agni is a god, the god of fire. But when there is fire, that's Agni. Like that is Agni. Agni is it's actually even where we get the, the English word ignite and ignatius come from Agni, this initial idea of the god of fire. This home of fire ritual, consecrating it, making prayers or 
requests of beings and then using the fire to do all of that, that's like old. Again, it's like way off the charts. But something happens, and this is where I'm going to start tying our timeline in here. This kind of secret, hidden, esoteric practices that rely on a guru teacher to teach you the secrets and then it's steeped in ritual. That's, again, that's all way back here. Here, for sure. Here, for sure. And it's certainly in 500 BC, the culture out of which the Buddha and Buddhism grew was one in which esoteric practices were, were aplenty. Um, you see, I have my big stack of books. This is a great book called Sadhus. This is a book about these um, wild, uh, what we would call medicine men, right? They're doing kind of wild practices. I'll pass this around. This is the sadhus, these guys that practice esoteric things. They've been around forever. They were around at the time of the Buddha. And as you can see in this book, they're still around here. So this is a way of being religious in India that Buddhism was around. And, well, I'll, ask, ask, I'll answer Jenny's question and then tell you what happened. Were the esoterics the yogis? Or was it something totally different? Yeah, I want, I want you to, to, like, to think of this esoteric thing that, like, with, even within the yoga community, there could be some people doing it esoterically. And there could be people doing it exoterically. Like no, it would just be like there's the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and you could just pick up some Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and go find yourself a nice cave. Which was exoteric. That would be just be exoteric. No guru. The, there's no hidden meaning. You just have to know Sanskrit or whatever, right? Um, or there's the esoteric version, which is there's secret meaning in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and you need a guru to tell you what it is. And it's actually not just about the asanas and the pranayama, it's about these secret little other ritual things, of which um, I will talk about later. But so again, the idea is that you could be do you could have esoteric or exoteric practices in any anything you name it again christianity tons of esoteric types of christianity tons of uh, esoteric types of judaism tons of esoteric types of islam which would be sort of like sufism and the sort of mystical types of islam so all over the place um there are sutras from the original kind of like Pali tradition that goes back to the days of the buddha in which the Buddha addresses the esoteric practices. He actually specifically addresses the, the Homa fire ritual. And he says in a sutra that basically the only reason you should ever make a fire ritual is if you're cold. <laughs> that's what the Buddha said. So his, the, and that, that's, that's kind of like a one-liner from a sutra, but there's a general attitude of early Buddhism, which is that the esoteric is, we don't go there. We have nothing to do with that. This is an entirely open, public, solo meditation. So I'm kind of contrasting the original practice of seated meditation with ritual. Originally, Buddhism had no ritual. It was a ritual-less practice. Unless you want to call meditation a ritual. But what we are talking about here is... Um, this sort of um, 
this performance, this, this performance with the body versus meditation of calming the body down, which of course is going for stillness, not movement, no hand gestures. So let's get into these. In the esoteric traditions of India, including Buddhism, and I'm, I'll, I'll start to, to tell you that it seems like for the first 250 years of Buddhist history, there was no particular esoteric type of Buddhism. No, the program was meditation, the program was the dhyanas and samadhis, and that's what people were doing. Maybe, maybe sometime BC, before the common era, some, maybe sometime in here, you start to have little things creeping up, but what you, but in, on a really important part to esoteric religion is it's steeped in imagery, having statues, having paintings, having tankas. Early Buddhism had no imagery. The only thing that you would occasionally find are the, is the image of the empty throne or the image of the Dharma wheel. But you had no images of the Buddha, you had no statues of the Buddha, you had no Rituals of prayer to the Buddha, nothing like that. But pretty much kind of maybe around 100 BC, 200 BC, is when you start to get the first Buddha images and the beginning of a cult to the Buddha, if you will, where people are not necessarily meditating like the Buddha. They're revering a statue of a guy meditating. They're not meditating. They're, they're like, yeah, go, buddy. Do it, do it. Thank you. <laughs> like that. It's more devotional. And, that, and that's actually very much the idea of, especially early Buddhism, is that if you didn't have the karma, you didn't have the inclination or the desire to become a monk, then all you could do was pray to the monks or maybe a Buddha image. You're not going anywhere. So your best bet is just to make offerings to monks, make offerings to Buddhas. That's your best bet. So you need these initial images that start to appear. And this, of course, is the, like the, the beginning of the Mahayana era. Mahayana Buddhism basically starts sort of in, in this period. All of this is really debated, um, all that, but this, and, and very broad. But the Mahayana, which is steeped in images, the Bodhisattva path, that all starts around here. you got to kind of really start going quite a ways ahead, pretty much to about maybe 400. Yeah, basically I'd, I'd say this would be a very early date for the beginning of this type of activity in Buddhism. Heavy ritual activity that steeped in these three practices, the recitation of mantras, the visualization of mandalas or images, and the, these hand gestures. So I want to talk about these three aspects of esoteric practice. All right. Is this happening in Tibet? Or is this, has the monk gone to Tibet yet? So Padmasambhava, or the whole story of that is around 600. This is when Buddhism enters Tibet. 
Where is the rise of Mahayana? That's right here. Northern India, what today what we call Afghanistan. <coughs> yeah. So yeah, that northern Indian region, what today is Pakistan, Afghanistan, that was the hot spot for Mahayana Bodhisattva path. That's where you start to see these big giant statues of the Buddha, like colossal Buddha images. The Buddha's becoming clearly a god. You know, you have these giant statues. It's not, it's no longer, again, like, be like Buddha. It's worship Buddha kind of thing. Um, so this esoteric fire ritual, and this is sort of a fire ritual practice, in order to use the fire to communicate with Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Yakshas, Gandharavas, Nagas, you name it, other beings... And then what, what esoteric Buddhism is? So now we're talking specifically about Buddhism. So there are these texts. They're not sutras, but they're like sutras. They're called tantras. All right? So what starts to happen is, is that Kind of around, yeah, maybe 300 AD, you start to see all of a sudden these new Buddhist texts appearing. We've never seen these before, historically speaking. We've never seen these back here. But now, and remember, 500 BC, 400 AD, we're pushing like a thousand years since the Buddha. A lot of time, a lot of change. And there's the emergence of these texts called tantras. And what tantras are, are ritual manuals. So they're not sutras, they're not stories. They're actually like, make a fire, make it this big, put this on it, put this on it, put this on it, put this on it, do this, do that. So it's a, 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 a ritual manual. That is what a tantra is. And so what starts to happen is, is that you start to see this type of Buddhism and there are other religions in India that use tantras. So it's not just Buddhism. But you start to see this type of tantric Buddhism. Why is it called tantric? Because it uses tantras. It uses ritual manuals. And these rituals, in addition to the fire ritual, they teach the, the student these kind of three things. And these three things are what make Tantric Buddhism or Tantric activity, Tantric. The recitation of mantras, which are basically magic spells, all right? Um, let's see. Here's a, so what happens is, is you get these. So these are, so that's one. This is a spell. It's a magic spell. It's not even in Sanskrit. It's in a special language called Siddham. Siddham is this like secret language, basically. So this is where you're getting into the secret of the hidden, where you need a guru to teach you the secret language so that you can understand these chants. They are chants, spells. Uh, they're also uh, called Dharani. So there's Dharani, 
or our mantra, I already got it up there. Mantra, spell, chant. But the idea here is, is that this, and this is kind of the way it works, the way the esoteric works, is that we are talking about developing a intimate relationship with a, a being. Uh, it, it might be a Buddha, it might be a Bodhisattva. Again, it might even be not a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. It might be some other kind of being. And whether it's Buddhist or not, the way this type of magic works, and that's another way of even thinking of this whole category is magic, it works by developing this intimate relationship with this non-corporal being that then that corporal being, that non-corporal being, whether it's a bodhisattva or what have you, for, so for example, I'm, I'm gonna try to approach all these books tonight. So for example, I have a book here called Mediating the, Mediating the Power of the Buddhas, uh, the ritual to it's a ritual to Manjushri. We know Manjushri, Bodhisattva of Wisdom. This is a whole book that's about a ritual, an esoteric, tantric, Buddhist ritual that you can do to get in touch with Manjushri and start to have a relationship with Manjushri. Um, so the mandala, so yeah, let me go through all these. So the mandala is the image. It might be a tanka where it's just the deity. Or it might be, we don't have any actually mandala propers, but it also, Papa and I might have mandala. <laughs> um, so, so a traditional mandala looks something like this. And it's, a, it's circular patterns within squares. And in fact, what you're getting into with all of this is a, like a sacred geometry is basically what's happening. And the way that you read... There's another mandala. Crazy. There's like a nine squared, like crazy stuff. Um, by the way, in, in a, next month, I'm giving a talk on mandalas, just on mandalas. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But the idea is you either have a bunch of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas with whoever the main one is right in the middle. These are like targets. They are like uh, flowers where the, like in the middle, the calyx is here. Um, and so you would have an image to a being, like, like Manjushri. And again, it might be a tanka or a mandala. And then you find out Manjushri's secret mantras, his secret dharamis, his secret words. And then you find a book like either like this and this one. This is an interesting book. This is about these uh, priests down in Bali, and these are like beautiful drawings that this guy did like in the early 1900s. Um, so you, you'll see, as I pass this around, you'll see that these priests, they have little altar tables, they have vajras, vajra bells, and vajras, which I got to talk about that too. Make sure I don't forget that. And what this book is about is that it's a study of their hand gestures. These are called mudras, okay? This is also a book about, this is more encyclopedia, this is more of the art of mudras. So these are these hand gestures of which, let me tell you, there are these Japanese, Japanese are, in terms of the scholarship on Buddhism, they're, they're 
their game is unmatched. And the Japanese have these encyclopedias of mudras, of these hand gestures. I had no idea how many ways your two hands can go together. <laughs> it's crazy. So these mudras, which by the way, the word mudra means a lock or a seal. And they are, you know, there's a lot of schools of thought on this. I try to give you guys a broad swath of interpretations. But the general idea of it being a mudra or a lock is that we are said to have this either prana in the, in the Indian tradition. It's called prana. The Chinese call it chi. So a, an energy, like a vital breath. So not just that breath, but a vital breath. And the idea is, is that we leak prana, we leak chi out of our extremities. Now, usually we think of this just the, uh, that we uh, lose heat through our extremities. But we are indeed losing chi as well. And so because I'm losing chi out of my extremities, there's a way to lock or seal that energy. And that's why the Padmasana, the lotus posture, is considered the tightest seal. And these two are considered seals. The simplest Buddhist mudra, that's not a simple Buddhist mudra. Um, so the Padmasana is the big lock or the seal of the, of the legs. And then the main seal or the main mudra for Buddhism is this one. This is called a dhyana mudra. This is what you do when you want to get into dhyana, the, that first meditative state. Um, and it's, there's some debate over your dominant hand on top of your less dominant hand or vice versa. But one hand over the other with the tips of the thumbs touching. And this is said, if you imagine, to create an energetic seal right at your dantian. The, the Chinese call that, that point two inches below your navel, that your dantian, right? The cauldron, right? And so this is a dhyana mudra. And so in, insofar as it, it's a lock or a seal, it's locking the energy. So instead of like leaking, you lock it. And so now you're locked here and you're locked here. And sure enough, if you do long periods of meditation like this, you feel the heat build up here. Now, is it because your blood's not circulating? I don't know. But the idea is, is that you're locking or sealing up the prana or the chi. But that, this mudra, though, is just the beginning. You've got what he's doing back there. You start, to, again, you don't even know how many ways these hands go. So these mudras, or locks or seals, are, yes, energetic locks or seals. But then, when, it's, when these mudras are used in conjunction with mantras, and used in conjunction with the visualization of the deity, so now, I don't know where the book is, but now it's like, I've got Manjushri's, that's, Manjushri's nowhere to be found, right? But I've got Manjushri's image, because I have the, the mandala or the tanka, and I've got Om, you know, Om Arapakana, you know, I forget his, his mantra. Arapakana is one of Manjushri's mantras, right? So you've got his mantra. And then somewhere you can find his mudra. And so now you've got the, the visualization, the mantra, and the mudra. And by using all three of those, the body, the speech, and the mind, that is how you contact Manjushri and ultimately have Manjushri either come down into you or onto you. It gets kind of, um, if anybody knows anything about 
uh, Sansaria and Orisha and Yoruba and all of that, and the idea of the 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 um, Orisha riding the person. This esoteric Buddhism talks about the Bodhisattvas riding the person who does this. So Manjushri is like riding you in some way. In Bo- like it gets crazy, but that's the idea. In a good way. In a great way. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Also, <laughs> oh yeah, um, sadhus. Yeah. Okay, so we're, now we're making progress. Um, a few more things. <coughs> a few more things. Another distinction between esoteric and exoteric. This is a. This is also a big distinction. Esoteric is sometimes called left-handed practice, and exoteric is sometimes called right-handed practice. Right? which I have put in parentheses here as heterodox or orthodox. Right. The idea being that normal Buddhism, exoteric, regular, old Buddhism, and any religion for that matter, the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of almost all these religions is the same, right? Don't, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, no, 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 right? The, 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 the golden rule and the, the moral code is kind of well understood, right, by everybody. I don't, that we still don't do it is weird, but the general idea of no killing, stealing, lying, like everybody has universally agreed, like, yeah, let's not do those things. What happens in the esoteric, though, is that there is a, a heterodox intentional reversal of these kind of moral positions. And so what I want to give you a few examples. And to start off with, I want to explain this left hand, right hand. So traditionally in India, um, it's very uh, much more so than, than other cultures. You know, we have this idea of the, uh, the left hand is called the sinister, and the right hand is called the dexter. This is your dexter and this is your sinister. And it, the reason why the word sinister means evil, but it has related to left-handed practice, there's a relationship there that seems to be transcultural, that left-handedness is like, ooh, a little weird. Right-handedness is like normal and regular. Kind of weird that way. But what starts to happen in India is that because the right hand is the, the good hand, the pure hand, you would shake someone's hand with your right hand, you eat with your right hand, and you use your left hand to wipe your ass, clean things. Like, it is the impure hand, right? And this is your pure hand. The reason why tantric, esoteric practices in India, all of them, are called left-handed practices because the, whether they're sadhus or siddhas, I'll talk about siddhas in a minute, all these people, they flip the, the moral or the ethical so that they use their left hand to eat and use their right hand to wipe their ass. They flip it. And this goes further. What starts to happen is orthodox, regular, exoteric Buddhism is, of course, pretty down on sexuality. Traditionally, they are about not having sex at all. The sexual energy, the sexual drive is considered the biggest problem. The Buddha even said if there was a drive stronger than sex, I wouldn't have been enlightened. 
He said that, that that was the strongest one. And if there was anything stronger than that, I wouldn't have made it. Funny, that's a very interesting thing. So the idea of exoteric Orthodox Buddhism is to not have anything to do with sexual energy. Again, in, in, in the Orthodox, if you become a monk, there's only a few things that get you kicked out of being a monk. And one of them is intentionally emitting semen. Jerking off. Out. Gone. They, took, they take the sexual energy that seriously in terms of don't touch it, don't use it, don't look at it, nothing. But over here in the esoteric, the idea is, is that rather than... So here's this, sexual, here's this sexuality, energy, all of that. The, the orthodox, exoteric, especially Theravada Buddhist point of view is let's just stay as far away from that as possible. Let's just not even have anything to do with that. I'll be over here. Right? What happens with the esoteric is, is that what, the way that you can imagine it is going through that desire. So rather than avoiding it, you go through it. Um, this also goes for uh, orthodox, exoteric, mainline Buddhism. No intoxicants. Straight head. That's the deal. Um, there's a lot of debate. I've, all the Buddhist communities like to debate about what that means. And does, is it wine? Is it weed? Is it this? Is it that? Um, you know, it's pretty clear about not messing with your mind. And, like, that's the idea. But, again, in the esoteric tradition, they use intoxicants. They go through that space to, to ultimately, and I need, if I didn't say this or if I if this wasn't clear to begin with, these have the same goal. Enlightenment, liberation, ending suffering. It's the same. The exoteric orthodox Buddhist position is the road to enlightenment is stay away from desires. Sexual desire, stay away from intoxicants, stay away from all that. The esoteric says, well, but maybe there's this path in which you can go through it. Right? And especially if you've been coming to the Sundays and you've heard any of the talks about non-duality, emptiness, and all of that, right? Because there is a way in Buddhism that to even label this as impure, problematic, or whatever, the labeling is a problem. Not the sexuality, but the labeling of it, right? So this esoteric practice is definitely steeped in the Dharma, all right? But it's just radically different. And I, again, I have a lot more to say about this. I'm just trying to lay out the field that we're looking at here, right? One last, so that's that, and then one last sort of contrast. This tradition, the esoteric tradition, is sort of focused on the sitha, or sometimes called the great sitha, the maha sitha. This comes from the word sithi, and these sithis we talked about last time in the sutra. These are traditionally in Buddhism, there are six uh, supernatural powers called siddhis. And one who has developed the siddhis is a siddha or a mahasiddha. These are your uh, yogis that are flying around. These are your yogis appearing over here. And wait, weren't you just over there? Oh, appearing multiple places at one time. Uh, reading people's minds, seeing past lives. Um, uh, a big one, a big one for the Sitha is being able to see other people's past lives 
And along with that is the ability to divine, basically a, a fortune telling, that you can see the future because you can see people's lives, both backwards and forwards. So a siddha is like uh, this magician, shaman type person. We can talk about those. Versus the arhat or the bodhisattva, right? That's, this would be the contrast, that mainline exoteric orthodox Buddhism is trying to turn you either into a liberated being or a bodhisattva, an enlightened being, one, you know, kind of one of the two. This tradition is kind of going for the, su- the ubermunch, this like superman type of an idea, all right? Okay, any questions before we look at this funny sutra? No. Um, is the, the idea, the, I'm going back to the left hand, heterodox, take uh, either an intoxicants or a sexuality, either one, is the idea of going through them to enlightenment um, that, so in, in exoteric Buddhism, in, in Theravada Buddhism, you're supposed to ignore them because they're a distraction or, you know, especially hard to work with. So is it, is it the esoteric idea that because they're so hard to work with, if you can work with them, boy, you really can get enlightenment? Yes. Or, or is it like there's something special about them that yep. sort of essential so you should know, because now, now we're getting very close to this idea of Vajrayana. Vajrayana is sort of a, it's certainly a uniquely Buddhist idea. So being esoteric, anybody can be esoteric. Doing tantra, using tantras, Buddhists and Hindu use, use tantras, sure. But when we start talking about Vajrayana, now we're talking exclusively Buddhist, esoteric Buddhism. All right? And Vajrayana, oh, there's so much. Um, So you should know this is sort of um, a nomenclature that's used in Buddhism. And they talk about so these are all yanas. This word yana means a vehicle, and I've often talked about how in India, even before the Buddhism, there is this notion of a yana, a vehicle. And yeah, it means a vehicle like a, like a wagon or a cart, but there's a, a metaphor in India of this yana. What is a yana? A yana is something that can deliver you to liberation, to moksha. And so there's all kinds of yanas. There's all kinds of vehicles that you can get on board and they'll take you to liberation. And I often mention one of the main, like one of the big popular ones um, outside of Buddhism is the Ramayana, Ramayana. So the Ramayana is a giant poem dedicated to the god Rama, R-A-M-A. And you would might chant Nam Rama, his name, Namo Rama, Namo Rama, Ram Ram. And that, chanting Rama's name, reading his poem, the Ramayana, that is the Ramayana. That's the Rama vehicle. And you can get on Rama. Rama's, he's like, Rama's like, come on, I'm, I'm driving. And the idea is you can get on the Rama vehicle and go with Rama 
to liberation. In Buddhism, they talk about these three yanas. These are Buddhist yanas, Buddhist vehicles. The little vehicle, the Hinayana, the great vehicle, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. The Hinayana usually is referring to Theravada Buddhism, the Pali tradition, this sort of conservative type of Buddhism that is steeped in celibacy, homelessness, and poverty, steeped in the Pali tradition, steeped in meditation. Like, that's it. And the idea, the reason why it's the little vehicle is because the Hinayana says, are you ready to give up sexuality entirely? Are you ready to give up a homed life entirely? Are you ready to give up clothing and your hair and your name entirely? Only actually a few people are ready for such a big step. And so it's the little vehicle because only an elite few can travel this vehicle. It requires great austerity. 250 vows for many lifetimes. Versus the Mahayana, and so you could say this is Hinayana, right, from day one. Mahayana pops on the scene. Mahayana is the great vehicle because everybody can get on board the great vehicle. The great yana is, I often say, like a cruise ship, carnival, and it takes everybody in style. There's enough room for everybody, and it's nice. It's not hard. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> it's for everybody. <laughs> Oh, which I'm still getting. I'm still getting to it. But. Oh, okay. But I just wanted to say that my understanding of the exoteric is that you don't ignore things as they arise, like you don't ignore, you know, lust or greed or aversion, that you observe it and you recognize it and you don't, but what, you don't react to it. So it's not, it's really not ignoring. It's, it's being very aware of what's going on at the moment without reacting to it. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the which? Esno? In the exo. In the In like but regular. I'm, I'm in the exo line and I do that. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of greed. And, and oh yeah, that's what I'd say. That's what I'd say. And, oh, and, oh, I, oh, and oh, actually oh. I sort of, I'm being a little, when I say this is sexuality, and the Theravadans are over here ignoring right. it. I'm being a little, right. you know. It's, it's like, it's not bad, it just is. It's mm -hmm. like, there, it's not right. impure or bad, it simply is. And to say that it may be an obstacle to having your suffering alleviated <coughs> yeah. even makes sense. <coughs> it's not just an experiential thing. The idea is that if I don't pursue every little greed that arises, I will be happier. If I don't pursue every time lust arises, you know, I'm out, you know, going for it, then <laughs> I'm gonna suffer. Like, it, it, it's not just like from my experience, it's like, it's kind of actually logical. Let me, I wanna, yes, awesome. And I wanna add to that this idea or a way of looking at this. So the Hinayana, in its practice, the way that it deals with sexuality, the way that it deals with desire, the way that it deals with the, the, this, this realm, is to squash it. Ultimately, the goal is to squash it. Now, the techniques are one of mindfulness, 
sati, mindfulness of it. That's how to bring it down. But the goal is to sort of suppress it. it, it it's, it's not exactly that. It's that by I, want, I have a much bigger point I want to get to, go ahead. And okay. I want to, there's a much bigger point I want to get to, which is this practice is one of suppressing. They don't want you to have sexual desire. It would be better, they, they are saying, if, you, if it doesn't arouse. That's the goal. I would suggest the whole Mahayana tradition, rather than sort of moving away from the sexuality, the Mahayana tradition is, is one of being able to be confronted with it, but not being moved by it. Versus this Vajrayana Tantric, which will be going through it. Does that sort of make sense? Sort of a practice of like, just get rid of it? A practice of, no, actually be with it, but not be disturbed by it. And then what I'm about to describe to you, to answer Noam's question, which is no, but how do you actually then even go further, go through it? So here's the thing. One of the, you know, this word tantra has almost become synonymous with sex. Like the idea of tantric sex and that whole thing. So I guess I would have to talk about that. And, and again, this is like, I'm trying to give you guys, you know, the real deal historical genesis of all this. If you want to talk about sting and hour-long orgasms and stuff, I'm not, that's not, that's some like new age nonsense that's like creeped up on into the world, all right? What's going on though is that you should know that even within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and by the way, Tibetan Buddhism is entirely tantric. It's all tantric. All of them. All of them are based on guru stuff, secret hidden teachings that not everybody knows about, steeped in rituals that are based in mantras, mandalas, and mudras, definitely having this left-handed practice, although not for everybody. And there is much more of a focus on demon slaying and superpowers than there is in other Buddhisms, all right? So Tibetan Buddhism is like, entirely Vajrayana, entirely tantric, whereas Chinese Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, and then even Indian Buddhism has um, groups that get tantric, if that makes sense, right? In any of these, Tibet, China, Japan, anywhere, in any of them, these practices that I'm about to describe are not for everybody, at all, at all, at all, at all. In fact, most of the esoteric stuff is considered not to be for everybody. You would already be a monk. A, this is not lay people stuff. It's where the whole hour orgasm thing's nonsense because it's not even for lay people traditionally. It's for monks. So the idea is you've been a monk, 250 rules, you've gone through it. Bodhisattva vows, 48, 58, you've done it. Boom, you've gone through it. Then you've been tapped by your teacher, your guru, like, okay, yeah, you can handle this. You're ready. And then you get brought into the tantras. This is probably the most famous, the Kala Chakra Tantra, the Wheel of Time Tantra. Pass it around. That is the, one of the highest rituals that you could do in Tibetan Buddhism. But in order to even get close to doing it, Uttara Tantra, the highest tantras, it's, again, not for everybody. This is like the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite that have been tapped and recognized like, okay, you're ready to do this. And what it might look like is elaborate ritual, costumes, hats, chanting, 
imagery, hand gestures, the whole nine, getting oneself into a state of meditation, and you would be at, a, at this Uttara Tantra, this highest Tantra state, you would work with a partner of the opposite sex, right? And you are both practitioners, very interested in enlightenment, very interested in all of this. And so imagine a situation where you are in a meditative state with a partner. You are in coitus, meaning having sex, right? But so the, the woman, and this is uh, what's called yabyum, and you'll see images of this in, in Tibetan Buddhism, where there'll be the Buddha this way, but then the consort is on the lap. They're in coitus. And the idea is, is that could you, are you ready to, well, A, do you have the stamina, men and women, do you have the stamina to be in coitus, but to not, and to be aroused? Like men, you are aroused, but you are not desirous. And you are, at, right, this is high level stuff. Like it, to be able to not, I mean, cause you can imagine like, you know, you can imagine some, somebody, they're, you know, a, a male or what have you and they're well-practiced and they've got their mind under control and their genitals under control and all of that. And it's like, okay, you know, test me. And you can have, you know, whatever pornography or whatever would normally be stimulating pass in front of their eyes. And the test being like, can I not get aroused? Can I see these things but not get aroused? But now take it all the way to where you're actually having sex, but using that sexual energy. Both partners are using that sexual energy and sublimating it. So neither person orgasms. And they actually sublimate the energy that would have turned into an orgasm. They turn it into a kind of energy that opens the mind, turns into enlightenment. So there's never orgasm. And the practice is actually like, how strong am I? How much control over this do I have? That again, as a male, where I can actually have an erection. So I'm, I'm, Aroused enough to do that, in a sense, but not aroused enough to ejaculate, not aroused enough to, you know, be having sex in that way. You're always having a meditation. Again, this is not for everybody. There are practices, uh, there are tantric practices in which this is just all visualized. You do not actually have sex with another human being. You do it in your mind to sort of, and, and there's a lot of crossover with uh, Taoism, which I'm doing a talk at some point about Taoism. Oh, look, you might, I held up the uh, Sanskrit uh, mantras or the, the mantras. There's a lot of similarities in these Taoist ones. Um, the idea of recycling sexual energy, that's not just Buddhist. It's not just Hindu. It's kind of all over the place. The idea that if you as a male or as a female can like arouse yourself and get that sexual energy, but then not release it, you could turn that energy into something else. Yeah? This is probably not for me, 
But I wanted to ask, what, when you're, if you're engaging in, in this, what is the mind doing while this is happening? Meditating. Just met, like, what kind of, it's just observing what you're doing? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you know, there, Not a, to try to, I have, A, I've never done it. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a guru, yeah. I don't have the guru, I don't, so I've read the, I've read the books. I've, uh, uh, passionate, passionate Enlightenment. This is a, a book, a book all about the sexuality. Uh, or this one too. The, oh, I want to mention that the, there's so much fun stuff in Vajrayana. But there's these beings called uh, Dakinis. Dakinis are these like gin-like spirit. It's, it, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. This is an amazing book about this kind of empowerment ritual that's going on in esoteric Buddhism called Kaji. Um, uh, I'll pass that one around. If you can find that book, I got it in Japan. It's in English, but I can only find it in Japan. If you ever find it, get that book. Um, um, I've totally lost my train of thought now. No, 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 it's okay. The t- intoxication is another one. This isn't about getting loaded and having a good time. It's actually about, can I drink this fermented yak's milk, have a hallucinatory experience, but all that whole time, I'm meditating. I'm using it for meditation, not to party. That's the idea. So again, these pra- the tantra practices are not for everybody. And then even once you're doing them, they don't look like what you think they would be. Because out, out here you think everybody's just having sex, getting loaded, and, and all of that. And it's like, no, no, no. There, it's actually some really delicate practice of using these energies that are otherwise, let's just stay away from them. But the, this path is about using them. All right? There's nothing to say about One way of looking at the test is in order to pass the test, you need to do some breath work, certain grounding, and without this condition, mm-hmm. this test, you would not be challenged to, you know, right. activate it. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily like passing the test, it's like using those. Yeah. Thank you. And that goes right back right. to Noam's question, or what you had said. Here's the thing about it. What? So this Vajra, when we've talked about the Vajra, right? The Vajra was our Vajra Paniparamita Sutra. The Vajra is the thunderbolt, the lightning bolt. Super fast, super strong. Boom, right? So the idea of, so Vajra is like, I mean, again, I could be here all night just talking about this idea of Vajra. The, the, The idea of the Vajrayana is, yeah, it's esoteric, but the reason why it's about the Vajra is they talk about the Vajra realm. And the idea is, is that once you peel back, you know, peel back the layers of greed, hatred, delusion, the kleshas, and all of that, the idea is that this whole world is made of Vajra. It's made of enlightenment. It's the substance of, of, of all of this actually. Akin to consciousness, but not diluted consciousness, enlightened consciousness. That's Vajra, and everything's actually kind of made of Vajra. So along with this idea of Vajra as strong and fast and all of that, the idea of the Vajrayana is that these, the Hinayana and the Mahayana, just dealing with desire, dealing with it, controlling it, either by stepping away from it or being in its presence, it takes within the tradition, lifetimes 
of doing this in order to achieve liberation. The sales pitch of Vajra, the quick Vajra path is that by using these energies, by using the sexual energy, by using these energies, we can expedite. And actually what the Vajrayana talks about is enlightenment in this lifetime. It's their like sales pitch. We have techniques. We have techniques that will make you enlightened. You actually don't even need to believe this. You just need to go through these steps in this way, in this order, and in an expedited way, we get you enlightened in this life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting if you actually take the perspective of the biting awakening versus non-biting awakening for all of these. Because in the Vajrayana, the, the, the introduction or the into the more advanced practices is nundra, which is purification of karma, lifetimes of karma. And that's actually, once one has one time an initial awakening in any of And again, the idea is that for most of us to even attempt to play with these energies would cause us so much backsliding, if you know what I mean. Like it's much safer for most of us to do either Hinayana or Mahayana. And it's only when a guru is like, no, no, you're ready. You can use your sexual energy. You could use these to expedite your enlightenment. Right. Yes. So this is like... You know, this is like Buddhist nomenclature, what we mean. So enlightenment is sort of a generic term in Buddhism for my eyes have been awakened to this idea of suffering is kind of how, what it means. Like, and there's gradations of it till you get to Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, supreme unsurpassable enlightenment of a Buddha. But there's the general term of enlightened as in like, I, I see now. Liberation, though, is when you have actually cut off desire. You're no longer actually wanting the things of this world. And so you are now liberated from it. And there's also gradations of liberation to the point of total liberation. I mean, and they, they talk about in Buddhism the cutting off of outflows. There's this idea of an outflow, outflowing of desire. And that, that it reaches a point where you have no more outflows of desire. And that, well, all of all of all Buddhisms talk about the cutting off of outflows. That's sort of just, and for men, that outflow also manifests as semen, and for women, that outflow manifests as menstruation. And so, there's a way in which both in Taoism and Buddhism, that the practice for men is the holding of that sexual energy. So again, you're not emitting semen and you're converting what's called jing in, in the Chinese tradition. And then for women, they also in the practice will stop menstruating, the idea being that they're keeping that energy of the egg in. And this happens, you see this happen even with like gymnasts and other athletes that will stop menstruating. And there's a way in which, oh, they're using that energy to pole vault or, not, or catapult or whatever. Um, so there is this sort of like science to this, but then within these esoteric traditions, they get deep into that sexual energy and again, manipulating it. Yes? Just go back for two seconds. 
in many pictures in this particular book, the left hand has super long fingernails. Yes. So is that? Yes. Part of the, this idea of the left hand approach where they let this go and they like trim this kind of a thing so versus is, trimming all your nails. <laughs> well, I don't know how it actually plays out, and all these traditions are different, but it's just a reversal. Of, like, so basically, in normal Indian culture, this is sacred, this is profane. They flip it where this is the sacred hand. This is your hand. This is what I see. Yeah, good, good eyes. Um, very quickly, oh yeah, sorry. So, jumping back, I'm trying to so, so, so in, in this, you said something the guru will tell you if you did it right. If you're ready. If you're ready. So because this brings up the question if somebody says, okay, you didn't, you didn't get it, you didn't get it, you didn't get it, you got it. Who is this person saying, you, I know you got it by their explanation? So this is a great, uh, thank you for that question. So there's something, an aspect to kind of all of this esoteric stuff, but definitely Buddhist esoterica. Definitely Tibetan Buddhist esoterica. The way that it works is this guru teacher student relationship. It's kind of magical in that it's not that, it's not that I think you, how do I put it? The general Mahayana view is that we are all Buddhas, but we have not yet realized it yet, right? So if I were to revere my teacher as the Buddha, I, I would not be wrong in doing that, right? The idea of the esoteric practices, though, is that when I revere, so I'm pretending you're my teacher, I revere you as the Buddha, and it makes you the Buddha by me doing that. And you will give me the teachings that you need to give me as the Buddha. In your life, you can still be totally deluded. Totally not enlightened, totally, I want to say totally because you're a guru teacher, but it's the magic of me bowing to you that allows like Buddha to come into you and then out of you. So it's a, a fully interdependent relationship where you don't get to be Buddha all by yourself, but through the teacher student, I can make you Buddha and then get a, and then I get a Buddha. I get to sit at the feet of a Buddha. And so that's where the Dalai Lama and all of these high gurus are worshipped where they go up and they kiss their feet and they, you know, because they're, it's not the Dalai Lama. FYI, the Dalai Lama's Avilokiteshvara, if you didn't know. The reason why I, the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama's, the, he's the 14th currently, but the 13th and the 12th and 11th all the way back, they're considered worldly incarnations of Avilokiteshvara. The Dalai Lama is Avilokiteshvara, and that's why people are, yo, Dalai Lama, give me the blessing. Not because of he's got nice clothes and a funny smile. They think he's Avilokiteshvara on earth. So there's that. So that's important. Does that he think he's that also? No, I mean, is that his own? This is where it gets really complicated, right? Because he would be kind of a bad Buddhist if he didn't think that, okay. right? Because... We're all Avilokiteshvara, we're all Buddhas in that way, right? But hopefully the Dalai Lama doesn't have an ego where he's like, yeah, you know, I'm... Okay. Let's talk about a sutra, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So this sutra that is called the Dimajana Atavaka's Durrani Sutra, you will not find it in English. Um, 
I, tra I translated this. This is a translation of it that I started in 02. I did this as part of my doctoral work at Princeton. I went to Princeton University. I did this sort of as part of a project I was working on. I found out about this sutra from this book called Chinese Magical Medicine by Michel Strickman. Um, great book. He mentions this sutra. And I was studying, if, uh, if you don't know, if I never mention, I did my bachelor's degree in religious studies focusing on Buddhism. I did a master's degree in Chinese Buddhism and then this PhD program at Princeton, also Chinese Buddhism. But I focused specifically on the movement of Buddhism through Central Asia into China. And in particular, I focused on these uh, wonder worker monks. I was curious about the role of the Buddhist monk as a wonder worker. Um, and I discovered this, I didn't discover it, everybody knew about it, but I personally discovered this world of Dharani Sutras. There's a bunch of them, hundreds and hundreds of these things. And I don't think any of them have ever been translated into English. They're kind of weird texts. Um, they're called Dharani Sutras because they focus on these Dharamis, which are the mantras or spells or chants. All right? So I chose this particular Dharani Sutra that's about this Yaksha or demon. In Buddhism, they're called Yakshas or demon, and he's not just any old yaksha, he's not just any old demon, he's actually a demon general. He has hordes of demons, yakshas at his beck and call, and his name is Atavaka. Uh, I have a picture of Atavaka. Atavaka. These are both pictures pictures of Atavaka. Uh, this is sort of a mandala. This is just sort of a uh, you know an image. Uh, he's a demon. He's got uh, many many heads, fire, flames, weaponry, blood coming out of the eyes, the whole night. The sutra I translated here. No, oh, I wanted to share this with you really quickly. Everybody okay? Yeah, I don't. I just don't want to overload. You're, okay, so so. Okay. So here's the thing that it's helpful to know. There is something called the Taishan Shinshu Daizokyo. Between 1924 and 1934, so between the wars, a group of Japanese scholars got together, and they took from Korea, China, Tibet. I think even Mongolia, but definitely these three. So these three countries, as well as Japan, had existing Buddhist canons, collections of Buddhist texts that went back through the ages, right? And in 1924, this group of scholars got together and they got the two or three main Korean canons they got the two or three main Chinese ones, they got the two or three main Tibetan ones, and they went to work, and they produced in 85 volumes a official Buddhist canon. So it's 
code, you know, it's every version of the sutra. They went, they looked at the Tibetan, the Chinese to get a definitive, like, not this, we think this is the safest bet, right? If you find, you know, if you go to a library, 85 volumes is like two, three bookcases. These things are thick, Bible-thin pages. And this is, for example, just one page of what it looks like. All right, so I'll pass that around here. That's what a, a page of the Taisho Shinshu Zaizokyo looks like, all right? If you're a scholar or kind of anybody interested in Buddhism, this is where you go to get the, the source, right? So this is sort of the definitive, um, this is it. And so again, anybody studying Buddhism, whether they're doing Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhism, they will all go to this collection. And every, every major university that has a decent religious program or Buddhist studies program will have one of these in the library. It was basically to collate all the existing canons into one definitive edition with arguably no sectarian privileging. And did they use the Pali canon too? Well, you should know that the first two volumes, the I think it's ju just the first, the first two of these 85 volumes are just what's called the Agamas, which are the same as the Nikayas, Giga Nikaya, Majina Nikaya, Samyutta Nikaya, the Pali Canon. So all these countries, China, Japan, Tibet, all these countries have what's called the Pali Canon. They just think of it as the early teachings of the Buddha. They don't think of it as the more orthodox teachings. They don't think of it as the only true teachings, they just see it as the early teachings. But they didn't go to India. I mean, you're just saying all these countries, but India is kind of absent from this list of countries at the bottom. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, because by the time these guys got around to doing it, these were the only countries in which Buddhism still existed. Okay. All right. So, very quickly, I want to walk you through this interesting little sutra. Wait, no, no. Uh, well, so Thailand is where, oh my God. Okay, so Thailand is where, and, and Sri Lanka are the places where the Theravada traditions survived. And they had their tiny, by comparison to 85 volumes, they had their tiny little Pali canon that this British guy came and got in the late 1800s. And translate it. And by the way, uh, not next Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, I'm doing a lecture on tu a Tuesday night on Buddhism and the Beats. Um, it's actually starting to focus on like San Francisco Buddhism because the Beats were here and all of that. But in that class, I will be talking more at length about these sort of origins of Buddhism. Right, so I don't want to get into it too much tonight. Is there any a project going on like translating that? No, but I, years and years and years ago, I did a translation project where I translated the Vajra Pranaparamita Sutra into English along with the Heart Sutra. 
and I was working with a Buddhist group to do that. And the stated goal was to try to get sutras into English, like to create our own English Tripitaka, as it's called. But we, I, we, uh, you know, the best laid plans, really. Um, okay. Any, Some are just to leave. Well, no, there's, we're, we're reviving it, though. Yeah, it's not over. Okay. Um, so here's the thing really quickly. So as my, part of my uh, doctoral work, I translated this. This is not an interesting sutra as far as, like, I don't want to read this for you guys. If you read this, you'd probably laugh more than anything. It is, you know, thus have I heard the Buddha was, you know, staying in, in a bamboo garden. And then one day this demon general named Atavaka um, comes up to the Buddha and he basically says, I have all of these secret spells. I have all these Dharanis, all of these, these mantras that I want to share with you. And the Buddha's like, no, they're too powerful. We can't unleash those on the world. And, and Atavaka's like, no, but these will really help people out because... And basically what happens is, is that it, this is classic Buddhism of the era. It gets very um, end times, where basically Atavaka is like, well, you know, we're living in the end times. Death, violence, sickness is everywhere. So you really should let me give you these magic spells because it'll help everybody out because we live in the end times. And then the Buddha is like, okay, great. I'll, I'll accept them. And the first thing Atavaka gives him are all of the magic spells, all the Dharanis. And he says, like, here's a magic spell for, um, like, basically, if you have problems with uh, being poisoned by grasses, woods, or seeds, you can use this magic spell to recover from it. Um, you know, you can ward off wind spirits and all kinds of other spirits. There's another one. And he goes through all these mantras, all these Dharanis, for all of these different purposes, warding off evil spirits and all of that. Uh, then he teaches how to make an image of Atavaka, which would look like the one that I showed you in the book. Multiple heads, all of that. You would carve a statue. It tells you what wood to use to carve the statue. It teaches you a schedule of rituals, like on the full. I don't know. I haven't read it for a while, but it's a very specific ritual schedule. How to make a ritual fire, the Homa, to Atavaka. You learn his, his mantras. Then there's a whole section on his hand gestures, his mudras. And ultimately what this sutra is about is how to evoke Atavaka. And you have a demon general on your side. There, there's a magic spell in here for how to walk on water. That, and it's like, yeah, you, you, know, you get in trouble, you need to walk across a river. Here's a magic spell and a mantra and a visualization to do that. Um, there's things about fortune telling in here. Um, getting revenge on your neighbor, all kinds of stuff that you would be like, really, Buddhists want to get revenge on their neighbor? The reason why I was studying this, though, was not because I was interested in the magic and not because I was interested in doing the magic. As a scholar or historian, I was interested in what people in China were interested in at that time. What were they trying to ward off, not ward off? And in particular, how... How was the Buddhist monk figured in this, right? So here's a great statue of a esoteric Buddhist master, Japanese esoteric Buddhist master named Kukai. And you'll see he's got a big Vajra in his hand. That's that big, this big metal scepter. That's a Vajra, right? One of the main reasons why 
this is all called Vajrayana, is because the image of the Vajra, that actual scepter, um, let's see. There's the beautiful Vajra bell that goes with it. There. So these are Vajras, you can see up here. And those are bells that have Vajras at the tip, right? And there were some pictures in the, in the book with the, the drawings of the priests doing the mudras. They would have a bell and a Vajra. This is a classic thing that you see in Tibetan Buddhism, all types of Vajrayana, where you will have the the spear or the scepter and the bell, which is the, the male and the female, the yin and the yang. The bell is the feminine. The scepter pronged thing is the male. And the idea is you have these two energies and there's a ritual of meditating on the Vajra while ringing the bell and listening to the sound. This is also evoking Vajra beings. You should also know that a big part of the Vajrayana is we're, we're done with, we're not done with, but uh, bodhisattvas, they're part of this tradition. We're into vajrasattvas. So there are vajra beings. In all of the literature, vajra beings emanate from other dimensions. They, they like, uh, um, a light will start to appear and then a being will emanate from another dimension, the Vajra realm. Vajra sattvas, Vajra beings, I don't even know. I'm like, bodhisattvas, I can kind of grok, I can kind of get my head around a bodhisattva. Vajra sattvas, again, so I'm just telling you, I'm giving you the lay of the land. Vajrayana, again, it, it's, it's a lot to do with this Vajra imagery, the notion that this is all ultimately made of Vajra, these Vajrasattvas. Boom. Vajra again is jewel? No, Vajra is a lightning bolt, a thunderbolt. Yeah, it's like... That's these guys? Yeah, they have Vajras. And what's great about those is that's Southeast Asia. That's down there in Theravada land. Theravada land is not Theravada land. All right? They do Theravada in those places, but they also do a lot of tantric stuff. In fact, one of... This is another thing we want to show you. So this place, Borobudur, you might have seen this. This is this giant Buddhist pyramid down in, in uh, Bunjava, down in Borobudur, right? So this is esoteric, <clears throat> esoteric Buddhism at its finest right here. God knows how they built this thing. This, this is all made of some stone that's not even from the island that it's on. Yeah, it, this, there's a whole crazy story about this. This is a giant three-dimensional mandala in which they would do crazy elaborate rituals and then guide initiates through this mandala spiraling all the way up to the top. It's part of a crazy tantric ritual. Have so, they identified where the stone is from? I think it's from an island nearby. Okay. Yeah. But I think that they, that, that they were tripping out there when they first saw it because they were like, yo, where'd they get all this stone from? Like... So it's all volcanic stone. Actually, what's that? What's the scale of it? Well, I'll pass this around and you'll be able to see the, pic, the tiny, tiny people here. Um, Are they tiny people or do they just look tiny? Yeah, no, they're not little people. They're, they're just... Uh, 
Okay. Uh, the. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. There's. I gotta tell you one more thing. Yeah. Um, when they. So when the, the there were British and French archaeologists that were down in Java and they had heard about a mountain. This a lore of lore, a mountain with eyes. And when they first found this, it was actually entirely overgrown. But you could kind of see the Buddha. This is all full of Buddha statues, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of Buddha statues that they could kind of see through all of the brush. And then they eventually uh, tore it all back. Very sad story about how the British um, built a tea house at the the top so that when the pilgrim, when the tourists got to the top, they could have tea. Sad, terrible, terrible. But, uh, but luckily, it's like UNESCO site, fully preserved and all that today. One more thing I have to tell you about. A big part of this tantra, ritual, fire ritual practice, is an initiation ceremony, an initiation rite called the, an abhisheka. Abhisheka. And Abhisheka is an initiation purification rite that you kind of find Abhishekas outside of Buddhism, but Buddhism like really perfected this technology. And what an Abhisheka is very quickly is, is that again with your guru walking you through all of the steps, learning all of the proper mudras and mantras and all of that, you would be brought into a chapel and on the ground would be a mandala, and usually it's one, one of these. In fact, there's the Japanese Buddhist tradition called Shingon. They use both of these. And first you go through this ritual, and then you go through this ritual. But this mandala would be, it's a, a giant tapestry that they roll out on the ground. So it's on the ground. You get blindfolded. You're given a lotus flower. You chant mantras, you go through this rite, and then you come into the chapel, and you throw your lotus flower, and it lands somewhere on the mandala, and whatever Buddha or Bodhisattva your flower lands on is your patron Buddha or Bodhisattva. And then your guru will be like, oh, you landed on so-and-so. Here's his mantras, here's his mudras, paint an image of him, and here's his birthday, here's his enlightenment day, here's his death day, here's his this day, and you would kind of um, develop this relationship with that Buddha or that Bodhisattva. But in that Abhisheka, you also get baptized. And this is a rite that goes way before Christianity. In fact, it seems like, again, like I was saying with the confession, rosary beads, there seems to be some indication that the Catholics, the Jesuits, came over to the Shingon priests in Japan and were like, oh, that's interesting, baptism, huh? Baptism like they were doing it. Not in a river with your buddy John, but in this elaborate like <laughs> purification ritual. Right? So anyways, this Abhisheka, you get water, you get dumped, you get purified, and then your eyes are opened, the blindfold's taken off, you see the mandala, you see your patron Buddha or Bodhisattva, and then you start your whole practice with that Buddha or Bodhisattva. The reason why I mention all of this is a long, long story. This rite, the Abhisheka rite, became very big in China, very, very big in Tibet, and very big in Japan. And what happens is, 
is that in all three of those places, the ruler in China and Japan, that's the emperor. The emperor in both China and Japan around, uh, so starting around 800, basically to probably about 1,000. So there was a two, maybe you can go back to 700, 300 year period in which the world was tantric, crazy. Every country in the world was involved in some sort of magical tantric stuff. Uh, I brought in like this uh, book of alchemy from, this is like a book of alchemy from Europe. Same time period, you can start to see um, uh, mandalas, everything. That's a lot of the same activity you'll start to see here. As soon as like, again, your eyes are like kind of open to seeing these patterns and things like that. Anyways, around this period, it was all about Tantra, and the Buddhist monks had this Abhisheka that they started doing for the emperor. And so what started happening in China and Japan at this time is that the emperor, by way of this Buddhist Abhisheka esoteric Tantric purification rite, the emperor was basically Buddhified, deified as a Buddha through this ritual that only the monks knew how to do. Because again, it's all secret, it's all hidden. Nobody knows how to do this. And the Abhisheka is a hidden, closed ceremony. It's only you, your guru, select few people, right? This kind of keeps going until you get to Tibet. Buddhism enters Tibet around, roughly around 600, right? A little before that. Tibet from this period on is Buddhist. And it is primarily tantric. Apparently, Tibet had a big demon problem. I'm not kidding. They apparently had a big demon problem. Padmasambhava, this Indian Buddhist saint, shows up and with a Vajra, supposedly slays all the demons. And that's how Buddhism, this is the story of how Buddhism came to Tibet. But from this point forward, it's all Buddhist, tantric Buddhist. And then... In this same hot period, I mean, you should know if you don't know that the Tibetan Empire, it got huge. And then it's kind of spilled into and became, in a way, the Mongolian Empire. The Mongolian Empire is even bigger, right? Genghis Khan and then Kublai Khan. Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan basically were these quasi-Buddhified, deified rulers. Now, it gets a little tricky with those with the Mongolians, uh, especially the Khans. Um, but what I wanted to say, though, is that from this period on, Tibet was an empire, strong empire, big army, very like formidable within the world scene. And from sort of the beginning, Tibet was a Buddhist empire, and the ruler was the Dalai Lama, or the Lamas. There's kind of different sects in, in Tibet. But the idea is, is that Rather than having a secular emperor that was Buddhified via a ritual, they had a, a monk, they had a Dalai Lama who was their ruler, who then goes through these rituals to become deified. And you may notice the Dalai Lama or other lamas wearing a crown, a diadem. And it's because they are like this Buddha king, a chakra vartan, a wheel-turning sage king. And it's, that's all tantric. It all comes from all this stuff I was talking about. There's an argument to be made that it's not Buddhist, 
But I, I'm not, nobody, I don't make that argument because who's to say what's Buddhist and who's not Buddhist. But from the exoteric, where it's just, it's not meditation, <laughs> this is all very wild. Yeah, I'm right here. Quick question about demons. Yeah. Um, Better, was, better choice of words. But the question is, though, the demon, is that where the demon general is so nicely giving all of these magical spells that, you know, because the way that we think of demons is very different, it sounds like, than they think of demons, and the Buddha is saying, oh, thank you for these beautiful magic spells, oh, demon general. <laughs> yes. I'm going to totally trust them, and so on. What, what is the relationship? So in, in the narrative of Buddhism, there are these wonderful tales of whether it's uh, um, Indra or Brahma or these Asuras, these demigods. Um, there are these stories of these like demigod like beings kind of converting to Buddhism, basically like having a turn of heart. So there are these stories where even like a demon general has had a turn of his heart. It's actually what a little bit of the sutra is about, where he sees this monk, and the monk's being like bitten by a poisonous snake, and he's like, oh, I wish I could do something for that monk. I'll go tell the Buddha about my magic spells. So it's a story. It's part of the Buddhist narrative that even these demonic beings can be swayed by the Buddha. Mm. Muchilinda, right? The Naga king with seven heads, who was like the worst of the worst, <laughs> is swayed by the Buddha is, and has compassion for him. So it's part of that. Back to sex. Yeah. I'm kind of aware of uh, Caressa or Caretza. Uh, I think it's kind of like a, a hundred year old ripoff of sexual tantra where they talk about uh, just a, a, a thumbnail that I know of that uh, kind of non orgasmic sex causes you to have uh, oxytocin release as opposed to the uh, dopamine release during regular. Oh, oh interesting. Huh? Ah. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've heard something that, along that, that line. have coitus for hours and hours. And, and I, but that's. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that sort of, the practice that I described is like, again, it's, it's, it's hard to, to really find out if the, the lamas were really doing it, meaning doing it, or if it was a visualization. Not to say that there isn't the tantric sex practice, but it's sort of hard. And then it definitely has been spun totally out of control where like the goal of this is to have great sex or something. That's Kama Sutra. That's what the Kama Sutra is about, how to have great sex. This world is actually, yeah, about something totally different, but it's the world, so this stuff gets uh, reappropriated, repackaged, all that. I mean, I heard that on the Indian side of Tantra, they will also even have sex with people that are repulsive, so that they keep their... Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to... So not, not on Tuesday, but a week from Tuesday when I do my talk on, on like Buddhism, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, um, like the early, the, the theosophical movement, Madame Blavatsky, those guys, right? Um, the, like, I, I, it's too much, it's too much to get into, but I, I sorry. <laughs> See, 
repeat your question. I, my I mind mean, just I, went. I was through. just saying that it, it, to, to, I guess, uh, following on that question, that in Indian Tantra, yeah. uh, most of the time the sexual practice was with someone who would be repulsive. Oh, right. Thank you. Yeah. So th the idea is, is that uh, <laughs> Madame Blavatsky and these early people, they were fascinated by these siddhas that had this, like, the mentality of, like, um, the mentality of, like, you could have, like, you know, a piece of chocolate cake and a pile of shit, and they're totally the same. I would, I would just, I would eat one or the other. That, like, that as a level of, like, tantric accomplishment, which is similar to this idea of, like, having sex with the repulse but not seeing it that way type of a thing. So a big part of the, uh, not a big part, I'd actually say, a little part of the esoteric is this idea of, like, flipping everything, which is, goes along with the left-hand, right-hand idea, but, like, flipping all of that, so where you turn the repulsive into the beautiful and so on. One more thing, I gotta say, one more thing about the tantric also is about the art of it. You may have noticed the flames, right? You may have noticed that there is a certain aesthetic to tantric art. Demons, we talked about the demons, yakshas, um, ugly beings, fire, all of that, right? The main idea of all of that is that, I've mentioned this last week, or at some point, but I'll mention it again, part of the esoteric tradition, in particular Tibetan Vajrayana, it's about successfully navigating the period after you die, what's called the bardo, the gap between this life and the next life. And what they say is, is that when you die and head through this bardo, It's fiery, it's flaming, you see these demons, you see these multi-headed scary people, and the idea is, is that if you are not accustomed to seeing them, they scare the bejesus out of you. So much so that you wake up freaked out and can't remember your last life. It's that scary and traumatizing. But the idea of esoteric practice is gazing on these horrible images and and kind of a, a, a getting assimilated or accustomed to them so that when you go to the bar, you're like, oh, Yama, oh, hey, I remember you. And you're not freaked out by them and you can cruise through. And by not being traumatized, they say you can actually steer your Gandharava into the rebirth of your choice, which is how the Dalai Lama keeps being reborn as the Dalai Lama, how Avalokiteshvara keeps doing it is that at that level of bodhisattvahood, they don't get freaked out at the demons. They cruise and they're like, oh yeah, I gotta be reborn in India, or I gotta be reborn in Dharmasala or Tibet. They keep flying in. So that's another part is uh, dream yoga, like working with the dream space in order to get ready for the death space. So another part of tantrism is working with death, death energy, charnel ground stuff, skulls. You see a lot of like skulls on altars in a tantric environment where they're confronting the death energy. Again, this is not limited to Buddhism by any means. This is where you get into Santeria, Vudun, Orisha stuff. It's Vudun, Orisha tantra, or is tantric. It's very like, there was a time in my life where I wanted to do a comparative study of Santeria and Tibetan tantric because I was like, They're doing the same thing. They're, to a certain point where they even have the same color theory, 
ge geometry theory makes one wonder about the psychology of it. Like, oh, is there an inner psychology where triangles and circles mean things to the mind? And then a red triangle, oh. Yeah, you don't say uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Yeah, same, that idea. Yeah, that these archetypal ideas or colors are the operating program and we're these instances or instantiations of that operating program. Yeah, something along those lines. I mean, I, I, I did only minimal practice of this, but I felt something like that where you will play around with the, you know, the processing, like input, output, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in these practice, you might change some, some of the modules. Yes. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'll, I'm going to leave you with this idea. Exoteric, orthodox, mainstream Buddhism, a good metaphor to think of that I, if, if somebody doesn't know about Buddhism, this is what I share with them. The metaphor is this one of a disturbed uh, glass of water, right? It's like it's, you, you <coughs> shake up the glass of water and now the water's spinning all around, right? And let's say you wanted the water to still and be calm. What would you do? You would just wait. You wouldn't try to move the glass this way or you wouldn't try to like spin it to make it stop spinning. You would just wait. You wait. That's dhyana. That's shamatha. The mind is like a disturbed body of water. All these ideas are like little waves. And the meditation is just waiting and letting the waves calm down until the water of the mind is like reflective still, right? This is all kind of stirring the, the water a little bit. And again, that's why for most people it's not wise to try to do that. You're better off just waiting, just shamatha. But the idea, though, of the Vajrayana is that there are these techniques. There are these archetypal mental things going on, and they said, no, we figured out how we can go in there, do a little tweak, stare at this, say this. Um, oh, by the way, so much. A big part of esoteric tantrism is what's called the three mysteries. The mysteries of the body, speech, and the mind. That most of our karma, most of us, our karma is like our body's doing one thing, our mind's thinking about dinner tonight, and our mouth is like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like we are very uh, not integrated that way. Our body, our speech, and our mind karma are like going all over. What they say about the esoteric is that it is a how to unify and use the three mysteries of body, speech, and mind. The a mudra is the body, and again, it could be this kind of mudra, this kind of mudra. The, the mantras are the speech and the visualizations, whether they be a statue or a mandala, is the mind. And by bringing your mind into that frequency, by shadja guru frequency, and then om by shadja, by shadja, by shadja, samudgate svaha, that's his mantra. By shadja, by shadja, by shadja, samudgate svaha. So now I'm on his level in my mouth, I'm looking at him. And then he has special mudras that are his frequency as well. So the idea is I'm putting my body in the Abhishadja frequency. I'm putting my mouth in the frequency and my mind in the frequency. And by unifying those three karmic aspects, I mean, and again, this is upaya. Most of the time we're doing one thing, thinking one thing, and this is a way to get you to unify your mind. It's a trick. It is like stirring the pot a little with a different, a different way, but the idea is it works or it has been proven to work.
All right, now I really don't have anything more to say. <laughs> <laughs>